here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the guitarist Larry Shamel, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. One time member of Kill Sybil and also Midnight Movies, The Flesh Eaters and for a very long time was in Death Valley Girls but has recently stepped away from the band and is going to do some interesting new projects in 2024. So look, this is the interview. You're going to find out more than you could ever imagine. So anyway, after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Larry, it's over to you. Oh, man. Well, um, yes, again, it's back in the 70s. And um, yeah, I was born in 68. So I, uh, yeah, I was a little little kid coming up in the 70s and some of the first the first records i remember hearing and having in in my bedroom and and cuz our parents weren't really rock and roll people they were more a little older so they had like maybe some folk records and uh, things like that um herb albert records so uh but i did have my two older sisters who were kind of like you know uh leading the way but I do remember in a, in my parents' record collection, they did have a couple records that I that I really would listen to over and over again. That was the Beatles, Rubber Soul, and the Monkees' second record. Right. And I remember like those I was really drawn to. It was the only rock and roll records we had, and um, so I would listen to them. And I remember I think it was my oldest sister had had uh, bought a a Kiss record. And um, seeing the record cover with Kiss on it and the makeup and putting it on and just the excitement of that that music was really that was the the kind of the moment where like um, was like this is I love this like whatever's going on here this is like you know exciting. And it's like kind of heavy and weird, and the band has all the makeup. I'm into horror movies and stuff, so it all like came together where, where right there it was like everything I loved was like, you know, like all in this package. And um, yes. and and my older sister was also into yeah, because she was really into Bowie and Sweet and Bay City Rollers and all that sort of stuff back there and and back then and and you know some of the more pop stuff uh bgs and stuff like that but uh um but yeah the initial catalyst for everything i would say was hearing kiss was the thing that just like set me off yes well absolutely actually it's funny with bay city rollers because i did an interview with les i did a couple which which was quite sweet because they were such a sort of part of growing up i didn't particularly like them because they were yeah. a bit, you know they were just the bay city rollers really and the young yeah, girls yeah. like them but at the same time right. i didn't realize later on you know you listen to some of their songs and then you realize where the ramones probably got a lot of their ideas from with their kind of thumping kind of anthemic kind of yeah tracks really so and i felt yeah. really sorry for poor old les because they got really done over by their manager which was just one of those horrible rock and roll stories where 
you know, eventually he says, that's it, I'm going. And it's like, but I've got no money. And it's like, no, you've got no money. And it's like, but where's all the money? It's like, you've got no money. And it was then, yeah. it, then yeah. his life spirals down and, yeah, then, yeah. and then continues to spiral down. So that's always a bit unfortunate. So, um, mm-hmm. but yes, there was classic pop. And we also had the Osmonds and and David oh, Kennedy yeah. thrown in, which was very groovy. So what was the age difference between, were there three of you then in the family? Yeah, yeah. So I was the youngest. Um and Patty was the middle, and Susan was the oldest. And, uh, yeah, Susan was born in 65, Patty in 67, uh, and I was born in 68. Um, so we are pretty close in age. Um, but Susan was, yeah, a few years older, so she would, um, yeah, she was the one kind of, like, who who was uh, buying records, bring them home, and going to concerts and um so we were really starting to like uh yeah get a lot of influence from some of the um music that she was listening to yes um, were you were your parents into people like bob dylan and donovan and the folk movement of peter paul and mary and stuff like that were they yeah they were, yeah they were they were kind of more beatnik they weren't hippies they're a little bit older but they definitely liked and they were from brooklyn new york like they grew they they were new york people and they uh in the mid 60s they they drove their vw van bus across the you know typical like 60s fashion they drove it cross country to the west coast to like start a life and start a family and um and they had they were into yeah, the folk stuff, like it was like the Limelighters, Kingston Trio, Glen Yarborough. Um, those are the records I remember them having. And um uh there was also others, you know, Sinatra and and stuff like that mixed in. And um, but then as as yeah, in the 70s, my especially my mom was really would would uh I remember we'd drive around in her car and she she'd have an eight-track or cassette of it would be like Janis Joplin or, you know, um, she even started like some of the rock and roll we were listening to like Aerosmith and Cheap Trick and stuff like that. But she, she did. Um, yeah. And she wasn't, uh, yeah, she wasn't like a, uh, yeah, big Elvis or Beatles fan. She was just like, whatever she heard, she kind of like, Oh, I like this or like that. And it was, uh, but generally, yeah, like starting out, like I do remember her being really into folk music. Yes. And what was the, you know, the household like? Because in the 70s, doing in the UK, and I'm sort of talking a lot about, about this to this um, author who's done a book on Throbbing Gristle. You know, the 70s in the UK was, you know, the political parties were changing all the time. There was this winter of discontent. There was a lot of strikes with three-day weeks. There was sort of shortage of electricity and all that kind of stuff. But you you had Nixon, you had Vietnam, then you had Carter. What was it like yeah. for you guys in Brooklyn at this stage? Oh, so yeah, we had already moved. They had already moved from Brooklyn to Seattle. So right. So we were growing up in the Seattle area um, uh, as as kids in the suburbs. And um, at that point, like in the seventies, like um, yeah, like n- none of that stuff. It was a, a different climate than the UK for sure because um, there was um, yeah, and as kids, it wasn't really like the politics and stuff where we're very um not really uh 
aware or involved. And, you know, there'd be stuff like I remember being homesick from school and watching like Jimmy Carter's inauguration and, you know, and, and I remember my parents being pleased that Jimmy Carter was going to be the new president. And, um, uh, and there was, you know, stuff going on like the gas crisis and a lot of things happening and, and, and Vietnam was still a pretty, pretty fresh kind of, uh, thing I had just, you know, kind of ended in the mid seventies. So there was stuff I was aware of as a kid, but it really wasn't, uh, yeah, but we were kind of unbothered by a lot of that stuff. Cause we were just, um, you know, like back then, um, having a family and being in the suburbs, especially in like Washington state and stuff was pretty, um, yeah, it was, we, there was actually a middle class back then. And, um, and we were, uh, yeah, like living comfortably and we had a house and, and, uh, and yeah, I just remember from those days being really fun being a kid back then and being really free and, um, uh, um, being kind of like left to our own devices, like just, you know, without cell phones or any of that stuff back then, we were just kind of like let loose until, you know, uh, was, night yeah. came. It was it was frisbees and skateboards, wasn't it? Really? Yeah. So and it wasn't. Uh, yeah. So the political landscape and stuff. Yeah, it was really wasn't really um, had too much effect on on our situation or. So when did it, when did the guitar come into your life at this stage? Um, that came in like Patty. She had started playing drums um, when she was around thirteen, and um, our dad got her a full drum drum set that she had in a room and she would be in her room practicing that must have and, been so um, relaxing for the family oh for sure i know yeah the neighbors weren't thrilled but uh but it was okay they were all kind of accepting of it like as long as she practiced during the day it was fine and um yeah so i um i was really interested in in uh playing a instrument but i didn't you know, like I, I had friends because I didn't start until later in my teens because I had friends who were also um, uh, guitar players. And by this point in the early 80s, they had my friends were already into um, like Eddie Van Halen and Randy Rhodes and stuff. And they were really, really like 14 year old kids, like really accomplished players where they could like do all this crazy stuff. And at that point, I was like, wow, it might be too late for me to start playing guitar because I'll never get to that level. Yes. But also at that point, I was also really um, getting into punk rock and, um, you know, with the help of my the older sisters, like, you know, bringing home Clash records and the Ramones and stuff and really starting to, like, get into that stuff more and then of course realizing like oh i love this music and you don't have to be a virtuoso to play this kind of music and if i could still play guitar and play you know this stuff i i want to do it and my sister had got me a electric guitar for for christmas around that time and i remember um yeah just like going in my room and you know, I, I think I had one of those old like Mel Bay guitar chord books or something, just to kind of learn the basics. And um, yeah, just started strumming along and listening to music. And and I didn't have any proper lessons or anything. I never have had. I just sort of self-taught. So uh, yeah, I just started playing and um, 
bashing out chords. And then what really helped was I would also like play with Patty. She's playing drums. I play guitar. And then it was like kind of all made sense to where like, oh, this is yes, this work here. I could actually make a song up and stuff. So that's fantastic. So when yeah. you got when we got to sort of eighty five, you would have been sixteen. God, I'm doing the maths, aren't I? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so do you stay on staying at school at this stage, or do you go on to sort of further education in college? Because the, the mid eighties, you know, because for me it's kind of shaped. You know, we had the punk and then post punk, and then you had new romantics, the the kind of yeah. the, the psychobilly stuff. Then there was new Paisley, which was all very exciting, yeah. and then yeah, yeah. and then you sort of had the goth scene that started to happen, and then out of that kind of eighty three onwards there was the smiths for five years with that indie pop sound and there was you know you two and um echo and the bunny men and julian cope and people like that so what was it like you know the, all these kind of very british bands which were very sort of there was also that mainstream production stuff like trevor horn you know with you know yeah. frankie goes to hollywood and dire straits and spandau bally and duran duran Sade. <laughs> so um yes it was all very much uh you know, but then you had a, you would have had Madonna, you'd have had Hall and Oates. Where were you? Where were oh. you musically going at this stage? So at that stage, yeah, being a sixteen, like for me and also Patty around this time, um, it was still like we really got into the the hardcore punk scene in um, in America, and uh, there was also the the, the more the hardcore UK bands like GBH and Discharge and Exploited that were still kind of, yeah, some of them were still kind of around at that point. Um, but, uh, and at that time, like being into punk and, and it was all, it was still evolving to where it was getting more fast and there was the crossover stuff happening. And I was really into anything that was super hyper intense and heavy at that point, I was like into it. So, um, uh, so there, you know, there were still bands happening at that time that would we'd go to go to see. Um, would like Black Flag, um, Husker Du, um, even bands like The Replacements would be coming around to Seattle, and um, you know, and also some of the the UK bands we'd seen like GBH and and a uh, um. Yeah, like a lot of these bands, uh, also the bigger the bigger shows like Susie and the Banshees and uh, U2 and like there was stuff happening. Seattle still wasn't a big place for bands to come. So it was like you would go to shows whenever, yes. whoever it was, we'd go go to see these bands. And um, so at that point, I was like, yeah, just really into the like the the U.S. underground stuff was really happening and really exciting. And there's a lot of, um, around 85, there was also this really weird element of these bands, like Butthole Surfers and Scratch Acid and Big Black and stuff starting to kind of happen. Also, it was, I think, the first time I ever heard Sonic Youth. And so it was like the shift of like being into punk and getting into hardcore and then in that mid eighties period of like things really started to get really interesting where this, it started to become like the hardcore punk stuff started to become kind of, uh, um, you know, kind of the same thing over and over again, kind of becoming stale. And there were some exciting, like heavier bands, uh, that were corrosion of conformity and, and, uh, 
the accused and Dr. No and all these bands that were also had like heavy metal influence coming in and, um, and also these other weirdo bands and, and, uh, and also, yeah, at the same, at the same time in our, in our neck of the woods, there was bands like, uh, beat happening starting. Oh yeah. And that was the first real, like, connection to our neighborhood that was like the c86 kind of sound and um and uh hearing some of the more yeah some of the more jangle pop stuff because we uh, we liked like some of the paisley underground stuff from la like three o'clock um and uh dream syndicate all that stuff was great but in washington state we really didn't have a lot of that so so locally we'd go to shows and and um and we saw beat happening and this was a whole like oh here's a band who is taking in like doing this really primitive uh you know the music that was really catchy and and um and also there was so much happening in that era because i was also like listening hearing the velvet underground for the first time which is blowing my mind and then seeing how that kind of connected to bands like beat happening and the in the more kind of naive kind of uh sound that um yeah that eventually i guess they call it twee pop or you yes, know twee, that's like that is that term is it yeah so k records is that kelvin isn't it beat happening yeah yes yeah. so did you because there was a band, very obscure band i remember interviewing called thatcher on acid and when they did an american tour i think they toured with seven was it seven year bitch were they from, oh yeah seven the, year bitch were they from the west coast actually was that they another were, yeah they were they were a seattle band and they're friends of ours and um yeah, when me and Patty were in a band back then, we had played with Seven Year Bitch, um, both when we were first starting out, you know, putting out singles and stuff. Yeah, around right. 90. Yeah. So then, so did you then, at that time, did you then sort of go on to college or did you then start sort of being in bands full time? Pretty much, yeah. Out of high school, like at that point, like our family, like none of us were, um, there was no history of uh, going to college or, anything like that it was just basically like once you get out of high school when you're 18 you just go to work you find a job at the factory or or whatever and um and then you know that that's it and uh um so yeah patty had been playing in bands since high school and playing in a lot of punk bands in town and in seattle and i uh yeah, I was playing around with friends and didn't have anything serious going for a few for a few years there because I was just like mucking about, like just like you know working odd jobs and and um you know eventually moved to Seattle and um you know just a lot of just being a part of the Seattle scene, going to shows all the time, uh, staying out till you know till the sun comes up and just just being entrenched in it. And trying to get bands going with friends and nothing happened till a few years later. And I think it was like just through Patty's connections of playing in bands and playing with all the, the Seattle bands that we started to like meet everybody. Um, but yeah, after high school for a few years there, it was just like partying, going to see bands, you know, just like, um, 
you yes. know, just like having fun. Because I'm not sure how it kind of goes, but in this country, we had, you know, like that period towards the late 80s. I suppose there was a bit of a shift because then ecstasy comes along and then there's this kind of new wave of, I suppose, 18, 16, 18-year-olds who start sort of wanting to get into that dance scene. So we had those bands that moved over, like the Soup Dragons and the... Primal oh, Scream, yeah. the Stone Roses, and the Happy Mondays mm-hmm. all started to get a different from that kind of indie rock sound to being much more dance orientated. And then you had the Hacienda in Manchester that created yeah. a bit of a stuff. But then you all, we also then had four AD records that brought out people like the Pixies and Throw Muses. So that kind of early sound of, of you know like grunge started to sort of appear as well. <laughs> so. And then we had other bands like um, My Bloody Valentine and oh, I yeah. suppose uh, people like that, which were a bit more sort of, I suppose you could say they were a bit shoegazy. But sort of the that kind of that change between the 80s and 90s was quite an interesting shift. So yeah. by the, the early 90s, did you, were you in your first kind of proper band at that stage? Yeah, yeah. And it was a similar thing where, yeah, probably starting in the that late 80s period of like around you know, 87, where there was a shift of, like, there was these bands like Dinosaur Jr. and and um, Sonic Youth were really, you know, the hot bands happening. And it was around that time, I remember, for the first time hearing, um, like, I guess, 88, um, hearing My Bloody Valentine, um, Spaceman 3, and that type of early, you know, especially with My Bloody Valentine, it was like, yeah, before they were kind of coin the shoegaze term that was happening and um so that uh yeah so it's like listening to all those bands and and um you know in america we also had like galaxy 500 and oh, and yes. a lot of really cool bands happening and so around 1990 when um yeah i finally like you know got it like me and patty kind of started a band with friends that were actually like like uh, let's take this seriously and you know like practice and regularly we were kind of taking all those influences and you know throwing them all in the in in the mix because they're like we were into so much from like this classic 70s punk stuff to the to the uh yeah the the kind of jangled psychedelic stuff to you know um whatever else is happening, uh, flaming lips and dinosaur and everything. And so, uh, yeah, so we would just go, you know, there was this party house where there was a basement and we just started, you know, kind of just making up pretty simple kind of garagey songs. And, yeah. but all those weird influences were in there and it was definitely like around 1990, 91, where, um, yeah, there was, yeah, the 90s had not quite you know, it was a starting, so it wasn't really defined as to what was going on in the underground because yes. we were still very informed by the 80s. So it was all like, you know, we were still, um, the the influences were, you know, everything from the UK stuff like the, and the Scottish, like uh, Vaseline's Mary Chain stuff to um, to the American sounds like Husker Du and, uh, dinosaur and yes well yeah 
So, because we, you know, the UK, I suppose if you wanted to be a bit of an indie kid or alternative, which is always a bit of a naff title, but we had, you know, like three weekly music papers like the NME, Melody Makers, Sounds. But we also yeah. had John John Peel, who was this great beacon who created this great, curated this great show, which was always kind of full of interesting stuff. So he was always kind of first on the on the scene really you know it could but oh, it was yeah. quite it was quite diverse because he played a lot of african stuff and reggae and folk and you know mm-hmm. extreme noiter but he did sort of introduce us all to the sonic youth and big black and huskadoo and you know it's where we heard and but he brought out that oh he didn't but he he got the sub pop 100 compilation that he yes. started playing and that was a great thing so sort of 89 i went to the norwich arts center to see tad um it was nirvana who was supporting them and that was just at that bleached you know when they just released bleach so um that was kind of a great moment you know hearing bleach for the first time which was just which was brilliant so were you very excited by that sub pop 100 kind of compilation yeah Yeah, it was it was it was a pretty big thing because in seattle like we were such a tiny community music community that wasn't very you know back then um no one really paid attention too much you know it was like the scenes in america that were big were los angeles new york chicago um athens um so seattle was kind of like no one really thought of anything was going on in seattle and um there was a couple compilations that came out sub pop 100 being one and uh Deep Six was another one on this label called CZ. And they collected all like, well, this is what's happening in Seattle, circa 86. And it was all like Green River, the U-Men Soundgarden, Malfunction, all these kind of bands doing this weird, heavy, psychedelic kind of music that was seemed to be unique to our region. And um, and the sub pop thing was cool because Bruce Pavitt, who actually like um, had a great radio show and he had a great column in our local paper, the Rocket, the music paper, the sub pop column. And every, you know, every month you'd grab or every week. So weekly, I think um, biweekly, maybe uh, you'd go straight to the sub pop column to see what is Bruce writing about? And he would write about these bands like the wipers or big black or um you know any anything he was writing about it's like okay got to find these records because he's sort of like the john peel of our kind of area um and uh so so there was a lot of you know there was these bands that we'd go see that were just our local bands like uh green river being one of the the big ones at the time and um And there seemed to be, I guess, at the time, I'm sorry, um, looking back, like, um, yeah, didn't really realize there was a kind of a regional sound happening until, like, the more I'd go to see bands and see, like, oh, yeah, I guess we do have this kind of sound starting to happen. And one really pivotal show was in 1988. uh, me and my buddy went to see. Uh, there was a local band called Lush. This oh, yes. is before they knew they knew that there was the UK band Lush, and Lush was a band that was uh, the singer was Slim Moon, who would later uh, 
um, start the Kill Rock Stars record label. So Slim had told me and my buddy Dave, like, well, if you guys are coming to the show tonight, make sure you stick around for the the last band. Um, they're called Nirvana, and you guys, you know, these, these guys are amazing. They kind of like sound like the psychedelic version of the Melvins or something. And we're like, all right, we'll hang out. And we didn't know, like, that night was the very first night. This is early 1988, where the first year or so of Nirvana's existence, they didn't really use the the name Nirvana. They used different names, and they weren't really focused yet. So that show was actually the first, the very first show the band used the name Nirvana. And it was in this old, dirty theater. And, um, you know, not very many people there. And I remember them coming out and... At that point, they were pretty, um, you know, they weren't wild jumping around or anything yet. And Kurt was pretty static, just standing there singing the songs. And um, I just remember being blown away. And I remember the songs that night they played and the intensity and um, <clears throat> and walking away from that show that night being like, this band is amazing, like my, you know, new favorite local band. And um, I would go to see them anytime they played locally from that night on and um um and it was like yeah like 88 89 and then when bleach came out and all that and green river broke up and became mud honey it was like that era was like okay now seattle kind of has this like 1989 was like and then th those bands going to europe and the uk and everett true writing about them and then it became like, oh, wow, like we're getting noticed because of our local bands. Yes. And that was kind of a cool time for our little scene at that moment. This is true. I think they had Bad Moon PR who did did their press. I remember it. Oh, they, wow. So, um, yes, it was quite exciting. I actually, you know, it was my, it is unfortunately my claim to fame that I interviewed Nirvana when they came to the Arts Centre in 89. So there you go. Oh, cool. So, um, yes, and I had no idea which member was which, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, I still have the recording. Yeah, and that's actually where I first heard about the Vaselines and uh, oh, and, cool. some, and some old blues guy that uh, they kept on about, which I can't now remember. But anyway, they were yeah. very, they were very sweet. Well, actually, they, de they described the place as being a real dump, actually, and sort of living under the bridge or sort of being quite grim, was it? Was it as grim oh, yeah. as the, Was it? Well... Yeah, like the story about yeah, living under the bridge, I think was all more myth creating mythology. But I do know that the place they lived, um, they grew up in a town called Aberdeen. Very grim. And I could only kind of maybe equate it to um, you know, like that Manchester or something. It's like very gray, very uh rainy, um, just very depressing. And some of those small towns, like I also, me and Patty grew up in a in a small suburb of Seattle, and it was like, um, yeah, it's very, just the the weather and the mood was always very gloomy and gray, and um, uh, you're you're out in the sticks, and it was you know, like kind of, uh, yeah, like disconnected from, you know, the city, and um, it was like, yeah, they 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 especially Nirvana, they, yeah, they really did come from a real, you know, backwoods little town that was depressing and um, 
very like uh you know lower middle class kind of uh uh you know f- families and and jobs were few and far between and you know working at the lumber yard or you know the gas station or whatever so it really was like they really did come out of you know and a lot of the bands in Seattle weren't actually coming from the city they were coming from you know, like Screaming Trees came from Ellensburg that were like way out in the sticks, you know. So there was a lot of, and I think that lent itself to a lot of these bands just having time to to, to work on their craft and to be in the basement and to write songs and kind of uh, create their own kind of uh, sound with, without, too, without too many influences kind of seeping in. You know, there'd be stuff they heard, but... I think each band had its own identity because they were sort of, you know, kind of disconnected from each other. Yes. And, um, but yeah, but the mood of the, and cause a lot of the music was very heavy and depressing and, and um, it did kind of, you know, there wasn't a lot of power pop or stuff coming out of the region aside from a few uh, bands like the Fastbacks who were amazing. Um but a lot of it, yeah, really did was I felt informed by the actual the environment of it being so kind of gloomy, just like you know, similar to the factory records kind of thing, and you yes. know that sort of vibe. Yeah, yes, I suppose the sound of Joy Division. Yeah, because I remember hearing Kerosene for the first time by Big Black, and that was quite grim. And then No Recess on the um, Bleach album yeah. as well, which was again yeah. kind of like quite amazing so then yeah so what was the kind of the the first band that you sort of became sort of got a label what was that particular outfit oh yeah that was the the band sybil which was the the band me and patty formed um with our friends um yeah we'd actually played a few local shows in seattle and um there's this guy Blake Wright who came to one of our shows and we had played, we did a cover of a old seventies punk band, the vibrators. Oh yes. There was a song called baby, baby, baby. And we really loved that song. So like, Oh, let's do a cover of that song. And it just so happened that Blake who ran this little indie label, loved the vibrators. And he like fell in love with our cover of that song. And uh, at the show, he saw us and he was like, Hey, do you guys want to put out a single? And we're like, sure. You know, we'd only been a band like six months or something. And we're like, yeah, sure. And, um, he had a label called empty records. We're a very small indie record label out of Seattle. And, um, we basically just went in paid our buddy a hundred bucks to do a single and empty records, pressed it up, maybe, uh, maybe a thousand copies, maybe five hundred. I can't remember, but uh, but that was actually yeah the first label I was on and first you know released music you know nineteen ninety one, and um, yeah we did a couple more singles and a full length album, and it was yeah it was, and it was uh, the timing was crazy because it was nineteen ninety one when Seattle like was you know. 91, 92, when Seattle's just exploding. So to be just the little local bands in that scene, like everyone was getting noticed. Everyone was getting letters. You know, the, these big labels would send these tiny indie labels, like letters to let, like send me the music of these bands because the record labels didn't know what was happening and they wanted to sign any band 
I was either from Seattle or indie rock or whatever. So it was a really interesting time to be um, in a band and playing at that time because it was just like all this insane attention you're getting that was like, uh, you know, so it was pretty exciting. Yeah. Yes, because your first single on the label is this is Olympia, then Push Me Down and Dream, isn't it? This is the three yeah. track. And this was yeah. recorded at Wedgwood One Studios? Yeah, yeah. It was just a, a guy's basement. Um, our friend Rolf, um, who was in an amazing band called Feast, who were kind of first wave grunge, kind of forgotten about, but they were a really amazing band. And um, he, yeah, he just had this little home studio, like maybe it was like a, you know, eight track um, recording unit and, you know, very lo-fi and, um, and uh yeah, it cost us like $100. And I remember, yeah, just like a very, you know, we just played it all live and recorded it and um, pretty scrappy. But it was also, um, you know, like around that time where there was a lot of these bands like Pavement and Sebado and who were very, uh, yeah, very lo-fi and that that sound was very appealing at the time because, you know, there was so many, uh, yeah, records coming out that were very, produced way too you know like a glossy and um and it was like getting back to that punk rock thing of like just slam out these tunes record them with a few mics and um and it's done you know and uh and i think there was yeah that wave of lo-fi bands um at the time that were that we were influenced by because it was just kind of getting back to the basics of um you know, just like minimal, uh, minimalism. Because yeah. we'd had the the L.A. hair metal bands, hadn't we? Which we couldn't with MTV. You just couldn't move for a sort of Bon Jovi and yeah, Poison. Yeah, yeah. And then you had sort of Aerosmith, and then you had sort mm-hmm. of David. Is it Coverdale? Jesus. Oh yeah, David Cover White Snake. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So there was that kind of whole five years of um, musical agony really wasn't it so um yeah I, I can see why there was this reaction and sort of a relief for the next wave to think these mm-hmm. guys are but then we had guns and roses i suppose were sort of yeah. doing their thing at that time so yes that was quite of interesting so then you you followed that up with another single that was recorded in december 91 so you were on a bit of a roll at this stage yeah yeah we just kept going in and like every few months like oh let's record some new songs and um yeah, the next single was, uh, I guess, more of an EP because it would like we'd try to fit as many songs as we could on the single. So that that single, yeah, had four songs on it. And um, and I think when that came out, we actually um, went out on tour. We're like, oh, we have a might have been right before that single had come out. Yeah, um, we went on tour because, like, oh, we have a single out. I guess we should go tour now. So, and we jumped in our van and went down to a West Coast tour through Oregon and California, all the way down to to Los Angeles and San Diego, and and did some of the tour with a a new a new band at the time, the Muffs, who were amazing. Oh, the Muffs, they had yeah. they done Kids in America by then? Not by then. Yeah, they were brand new, and um, uh, they had maybe put out a couple singles at that point, and and um. So it was really cool to kind of like, you know, like uh, 
meet them and play with them on tour. And there was this other amazing band from Boston called the Cheater Slicks, who were a great garage band. We played with them. We played um, this club in L.A. called Raji's, which uh, was kind of legendary for Nirvana playing there. And um, uh, played a place called Els Bar. And, and um, yeah, we played, it was like a, yeah, this is like 92, and it was, um, it, it was it was crazy when we went down to L.A. It was like shortly after the L.A. riots had happened, so it was like kind of like uh, there were still parts of the city that were kind of shut down because of that. And um, and did you, but did, I you ever, little... did you ever cross paths with Concrete Blonde at this stage? Because they had been sort of going for a few years. Were they? Yeah, in your... they, yeah. They, I remember them, and and I had met one of the members a few years ago in LA and um but back then yeah I remember really liking the 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 music and and I think Patty had their record but yeah never back in that time period never you know played with them or met them and uh yeah there was uh yeah I remember yeah the LA um yeah there was a lot of really amazing LA bands that eventually we did meet like when Patty joined Hole and met a lot of those people, like bands like Red Cross, and um, ended up meeting like yeah, like the um, Danny from the Three O'clock and and uh, like so many cool LA people, and uh, um, yeah. So so going to yeah, that tour was interesting because the flyers would say. Seattle sub pop band Sybil playing. And we weren't on sub pop. The they the press just loved to jump on any band from Seattle they they'd call sub pop or grunge or you know, so it was like just kind of like hyped um because of uh because of our you know being from the Seattle scene at the time. Yes, yeah. this is vicious. So when you came to record the album, had there been a lineup change at this stage? Oh yeah, yeah, because it had like Patty had left to join Hole, and then we had a our bass player had left, and we got another uh, bass player Simon who came in, and uh, he was in a uh, he was in a few bands um, from Portland who were like legendary punk bands like Napalm Beach, Final Warning, and he he was great on the bass and. Um, so yeah, that was the lineup for the new record, and then we had this uh, producer, and it was his very first, one of his very first full-length albums. Um, the producer's name was Phil Eck, and um, it was again, and and the drummer we had Eric Ockrey was also an amazing drummer who was in uh, an amazing band called Tree People, who turned into Built to Spill, and oh yes, um, yeah, and uh, Phil Eck went on to produce like. He's a pretty sought-after producer these days. He's you know worked with everybody from you know Modest Mouse and Death Cab for Cutie and so many others that I'm forgetting. Yeah. Um, but we were all kind of starting out at that time, and and um, yeah, and we just sort of like let, let's you know had enough songs for a record and went in, and again, Empty Records put that out, and um, and that was getting near yeah because that came out '93 and it was kind of it was a very the band had kind of, yeah, kind of by, I think, mid-93 had kind of ended, kind of, uh, so it was a pretty quick, you know, like, 
couple singles, a full-length album, like within that three-year yes. period, it was all kind of compacted into that short period. And how did yeah. you um, bring the songs together? Was it a complete band effort or were you individually all responsible for different tracks or did two of you write all the material? It was a pretty, it was a pretty uh, a collaborative band. And the only thing that we were really weren't collaborating on was Tammy, the singer, would write the lyrics and melody. And we would, the band, we would just jam or bring in a riff or, you know, a bass part and like, all right, let's, you know, let's kind of work with that for a bit. And it was very quick and very just sort of like off the cuff. And then Tammy would kind of sit in a practice and, and, um, listen and kind of write scribble down some lyrics and i do a, a vivid memory of this time period because um uh everett true had come over to do more stories on the seattle scene since he did the is that the melody maker or he did one of the yes the melody and, yeah. and uh so he had come to hang out in seattle to to you know, kind of take in what was really going on in around 91 and um, 92. And he came to one of our practices, and I remember him just sitting in the corner with little earplugs in, just kind of taking it in, because he really wanted to see, like, you know, local bands and their element kind of doing their thing. And um, <clears throat> I thought it was a really, yeah, funny thing at the time. And I think he was also in town hanging out with... Uh, yeah, Kurt and Courtney had uh, had a house um, up there, and he was hanging out with them, and and um, so he was just really trying to absorb um, what was going on in the city at that time. And um, but yeah, we we were pretty like it was pretty loose, collaborative kind of band where there wasn't one main songwriter. Did you feel when you were recording it that? the band were going to do that and then it was going to be all over at that stage. It wasn't a sort of a plan that you'd be touring it and then doing another album. Did it feel like? Yeah. It, it, was it felt to... like, yeah, it felt, it didn't feel, it felt like I remember finishing the record and being like, cool, you know, and it came out and it got, I remember it getting like decent reviews and some of the fanzines and stuff meeting like, cool, people like it. And, and it just sort of like, yeah, just sort of like, um, like me and the bass player left the band and then I think they kind of went on for a few more months and played some shows and, and then they kind of all ended it a few months later. And it just seemed like, you know, and at the time we were all pretty young and kind of like, um, you know, not really focused. And uh, so, yeah, I don't think any of us thought like the band was going to break up after the record came out or anything. Because I think the plan was like, oh, this is fun. Let's keep doing it. But then after the record came out, and and um, uh, you know, and being uh, at that time period, um, we were just all like distracted by other things and going in different directions. And yeah, and the band just sort of like yeah burned out. And but it wasn't like a a plan. It just sort of happened, you know. Blimey, so then, yeah. that was a bit drastic. So then how do you navigate your 90s at this stage? You know, because then obviously the 90s is shaped by Never, Never Mind, and then we had, you know, Oasis and Blur and Suede appearing yeah. and Elastica and all that kind <laughs> of scene. And also for us, you know, we gone from the Thatcher years to John Major. So the country yeah. wasn't wasn't quite so poverty-stricken. But again, you know, yeah. it was still kind of, there was lots of areas which were quite poor, but generally there was a little bit of wealth appearing in the uh, 
in this little island of ours. So what was your sort of then sort of from 94, where did you navigate? Because obviously Patty's career is kind of going quite astronomically up yeah. at this stage, isn't it? So how were you all navigating that? Yeah. So, yeah. So after the band broke up, then the plan was like, all right, start another band, get this thing going again. And um, meanwhile, Patty's on the Saturday Night Live TV show and on the cover Rolling Stone and traveling the world. And and there was also at the time, you know, Seattle had really blown up and it was like grunge was the hip thing. And um, there was also a very dark element hanging over the whole scene and that was the drugs and um that kind of uh thing was going on and i you know i had gotten kind of drug into that um vortex of uh of the drug world and um yeah in a and that was kind of going on you know with like hole in nirvana and stuff that that was also a dark cloud over their world too. And in Seattle, that, that was happening to where we had started to see, um, you know, some of our friends in the community, like the first one, uh, Andy Wood, who was a singer of the band Malfunction, who turned into Mother Love Bone. He was like, he died of a heroin overdose. And then about a year or two later, Stephanie Sargent from Seven Year Bitch died of a heroin overdose. And it started to kind of kick in and and me and a few other friends were kind of entrenched in that world and and just kind of like, you know, got sucked under into the undercurrent of the addiction. And that really sidelined any of our attempts to like, oh, yeah, let's start a band and, you know, like trudge forward, because then we were like, like, oh, we're we're like now in this dark, druggy world of heroin and 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 um. And it was kind of a cliche, you know, because it was like, oh, Seattle, like it's all like grunge and heroin and gloomy. And it was sort of like that would really was my life back then. You know, it was like that's where I kind of found myself. And, um, you know, it was very bleak and it was a uh, <clears throat> had a tough few years. And, and in 94, um, yeah, the big hit when when Kurt Cobain died. And then it was a maybe a month later where Christian Pfaff from Hole, the bass player, she died. You know, and these are all people we knew, and and um, uh, especially Christian was a Christian was a very close friend, and um, and uh, <clears throat> so yeah, that mid '90s period was very dark and very like I really wasn't um, yeah, like uh, doing music because I yeah I had kind of like got sidetracked by you know addiction and it wasn't until like uh but i do remember it was it wasn't all like um i I was still clued in on what was going on and music because i would go to see some of the the happening bands were all coming from the uk and um and elastica i remember them seeing them supergrass um you know blur a lot of these bands were kind of replaced the what was going on in America. It's like there was a breath of fresh air coming from the UK. And I was still, you know, like conscious enough to be like aware of like, oh, like this is happening. Oh, this new band Oasis is happening. And and um, you know, so but I was still like <clears throat> unable to kind of get 
music going again because I was kind of in a bad place. And it wasn't until 1997 when I moved to L.A., Patty was already down there playing in a hole. So I kind of escaped Seattle in 97 and moved to L.A. to kind of like to rebuild and start again because to yes. get out of that. How, how were your parents dealing with, I don't know, what your, uh, you know, Patty and you obviously not in a great place. How how were you sort of navigating that kind of slightly tricky family dynamic when two, yeah. two, two of the kids aren't doing, you know, yeah, Christmas, yeah. Christmas and birthdays and celebrations must have been tricky at times. Oh, for sure. It was, it was very strange. And it was like with the family, like they had, um, they had gotten divorced when we were young kids. When I was 12 years old, um, back in 1980, they had already got divorced. So we're already kind of a broken family, but, um, and on top of that, they, um, both of our parents were alcoholics. So there was that sort of history Right. There, but they but they were sober. They had gotten sober when we were kids, and so we never really saw them drunk or any. Didn't see any of the, you know, really bad stuff. Um, but that did, you know, some of those behaviors came out in their the the way they kind of definitely in their divorce and and there was some drama around the house for sure. So they, even though it was, you know, definitely, um, uh tragic for them to have their kids uh be drug addicts and and um they understood that oh this is part of you know part of the family uh you know our genes or whatever like the the addiction was part of it so they understood that it wasn't uh you know it wasn't something on our part that we like completely chose to do it was we just sort of like were drawn to it and and you know, our addictions took over. So they, they, they knew, um, and they kind of knew how to handle it because they knew, they knew like not to be, uh, codependent and not to, to kind of let us kind of like go down that road and they, they could only do what they could do. And any sort of like intervention might have derailed you know, might have been done more harm than good, which actually did happen, like in Patty's case, where she, I think she they tried the band tried to do an intervention on her, and she you know didn't stick. So I think it really came to they knew that the only way for their kids to get clean and sober is like they really had to come to that conclusion themselves and want it, yeah. which which eventually happened, and that, and it all kind of worked out. But they were very um yeah they 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 weren't uh they they handled it very well i guess as far as parents with their kids being you know on a on a really bad um road um they they understood and when we got clean and sober they were just very like happy with you know that we actually came out of it and went to rehabs and stuff and Yes, my God. So did you manage to sort of get clean before Patty then? Did you get clean in the 90s at this stage? Yeah, yeah, 1997. Uh, <clears throat> I jumped on a plane and uh, Patty sent me a plane ticket, like come down to L.A. and you could stay at my place and get, you know, uh, kick your habit and get sober. So I did. and um, But at that period, Patty was still in hole and there was still 
the drugs were still kind of happening in that world. But I managed to, from that day on, like stay clean and, um, you know, like started to go to 12 step programs and meet people and meet people in the LA music scene and, and kind of start rebuilding from there. And I pretty much, yeah, never, uh, never used or drank again after that. I was pretty much like, okay, I'm, I'm done. Like, I just need to, you know, get back on track and. Yes. Cause it's then musically things get really, I mean, though, you know, good for that, but the the music scene then becomes really in places horrendous, doesn't it? Because I just, you know, I wasn't there thankfully, but Woodstock 99, you get all those kind of heavy rap white dudes bands just gonna limp biscuit, red hot chili peppers, Mm -hmm. um, all those bands that, I I'd never listened to. I can't know oh, enough. Yeah. But you know, the lineup, they had three women, there was a few black, you know, artists, but then it was just white dudes and it was absolutely horrendous, wasn't it? So what's it like for you then sort of coming back and thinking, right, music, what's happening? Jeezy queasy, this is not good. Um Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely a shock because in ninety-seven I remember like when I was first getting sober and it, you know, turned on the t- MTV and the first thing I saw was the Spice Girls. And I was like, I was like, oh my, like this is the this is what's happening right now. This is the big thing. And um and uh and also like yeah, the boy bands were happening, Backstreet Boys and in sync and all this stuff. And and it was like, wow, this is a complete, you know, shift from just a few years earlier with Nirvana and and um you know, all those bands. So and then to make it worse, then came, yeah, Limp Biscuit and Corn and and um, you know, all these all these heavy, you know, like frack boy kind of bands, rap metal stuff that was just like became huge and kind of overtook, um, <clears throat> overtook the the musical landscape for a minute. Where, um, where when I when I uh, you know, when I first moved to L.A., I, I was kind of like I hooked up with some old L.A. punk rockers, uh, the Flesh Eaters, who had been around for years and <clears throat> started playing with them, which is really cool because I liked them when I was a kid and got to meet a lot of the L.A. punk rock scene people from bands like the Circle Jerks and X and um, all these great bands. So um so I was kind of doing that and kind of, you know, in this other world, but seeing all this you know, this mainstream music be really like just really, you know, uh, just yeah, not good stuff happening. <laughs> no, and, uh, it, I, I mean, it's, kind of, it's, such it. a, it's such a buzz between this kind of cut, cut sort of talking about feminism and sort of you know, deep and, you know, meaningful thoughts and sort of, you know, wanting equality and all that kind of groovy stuff. And then, you know, fast forward a few years and then you get all these people who, you know, Limp Biscuit and all those dudes who were just kind of, let's smash this place up, you boy, come yeah. just get, kick the shit out of people. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's very nice. like, yeah, yeah, it was like back to like so have you, Did you ever see the Woodstock 99 film just for the, you know? Oh, I, I yeah, I, I haven't watched it yet, but I'm very, like, a friend of mine told me I must watch it because I'm very, yeah, I'm very, uh, um, yeah, intrigued by that yeah. because I'm sure it really encapsulates that era 
Um, it's, it, I will just say it's absolutely exhausting. You know, you go Friday, that's bad. Saturday is getting worse. Anything, and then they go Sunday. It's even anything. Well, this is like apocalypse now. Now, you know, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know yeah. how can how can it actually get worse? It doesn't. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's going to get worse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's <laughs> and that's interesting that that kind of was like that Woodstock in the '60s, sort of like was the end of you know the flower power generation and stuff. But it was actually for the most part, a, a positive thing for most of the people. And so Woodstock 99 being a very, um, you know, it was like Altamont or something where it was like, oh, this is the, the 90s started on this positive note. Now the 90s are starting on this horrible or ending on this very, you know, bleak ending. And it's like, what's next? And, um, and it's really interesting how the thing that came next in music was was refreshing because it was 2000, 2001, I think, when all of a sudden the strokes and white stripes and stuff happened. So it was kind of, it shifted again back to more like, let's get back to, you know, just like fun rock and roll and kind of like um, back to basic sort of punk kind of vibe. Um, which was really good because then uh, that kind of overtook, you know, the, the the rap rock and all that stuff was still happening, but there was another breath of fresh air as far as like the the music, you know, new music happening and stuff. Yes, I think every three to five years is another kind of chapter that another wave of kind of younger kids come along and they probably think, oh, I'm not really going to be into bands that have been around for at least five years at some but you, yeah. you want to discover that band for yourself so you want to go to that little place see this little band they're going to be your band you get the first single and it's like wow this is amazing i love you guys yeah, yeah. and then you get a bit older and then you have to sort of start looking you know paying your rent and doing those boring sort of adult things and you can't sort of be so obsessed spending yeah. so many evenings watching little bands in little clubs so um <laughs> it does happen so then the oh years this is is this where midnight movies appears for you yeah yeah there was a so when the 2000s started um yeah it actually had for 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 about a year i joined a friend of mine in seattle was in a garage band that um he he was like oh we need a guitar player or one of our guys quit and you want to do a tour and so there was like a a period in the year 2000 where i went up back to seattle to join this band and they were called the gimmicks and um did a you know huge US tour with them and it was all like yeah during that time where places like Detroit were blowing up with the white stripes and and all that stuff and we played with a lot of those um a lot of those bands and and it was it was a fun period and then but I eventually like was like when that tour ended I was like I gotta get back down to LA because things were sort of happening down there and um so, um, yeah, around 2001, 2002, I had started, uh, I had met this girl, Gina, and we were both into the same sort of music. And um, uh, so we had this, you know, like, let's, you know, start writing, writing songs together. And, and, and um, we were definitely more coming from a school of more of an art rock kind of thing where... Uh, we were definitely 
more into the kraut rock sounds and uh, and there was definitely like a stereo lab influence and broadcast and clinic and these type of bands who were really um inspiring to us and gina the singer had a we definitely had a velvet underground thing going and she she had her voice was pretty had kind of a nico quality to it which people would always kind of um you know point out which was you know which was cool it wasn't she wasn't trying to affect that it was just the way her voice sounded um so Midnight Movie started, and me and Gina started the band and got a friend of ours, Jason, to come in and do synthesizer and keep in guitar and, and bass. In a, it was just a three-piece. And that was another thing where L.A. was really happening at the time, and there was a lot of these bands coming out of the scene, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club and um, uh, Moving Units, The Warlocks. Like, all these bands were kind of like bubbling under and um we got caught up in the LA scene at the time and um it was still in this era that early 2000s where bands were still getting signed to you know um like not major label deals but pretty decent indie label deals and stuff and in midnight movies we did get a uh a label sauce play at one of the local shows and they you know uh wanted to do a record with us and we and we were excited because the label emperor norton world also had um a lady tron and a few other bands that we you know liked on the on that label so that was another whole beginning of um yeah that band's kind of uh uh career which was pretty fun and exciting a lot of really cool does that label happened. also does a lot of kind of house music, doesn't it? Like yeah. Felix the House Cat. Yeah, Felix, and, um... Felix the House Cat. And yeah, it was a lot of like dance electronic music. And then Lady Tron and Midnight Movies where they were like the token more more of rock end of things. And we did have a bit of the um electronic kind of like because we were we also really liked what like Primal Scream were doing, like during Exterminator and you know, kind of mixing in um these elements and also bands like broadcast who are on warp and the warp label was, we really liked stuff that was coming out on warp. So it was kind of like a really a cool period of, of uh, music happening. Yes. So you brought the first album out in 04 at this stage, didn't you? Yeah. Which, which um, studio did you use for that? Oh man, I forgot the name of the studio. It's been so long, but I, but I do remember it was in orange County here in, in Los Angeles or outside of Los Angeles. And, um, and the producer, this, um, from the UK, Fulton Dingley was his name. And he was, um, he had uh, worked with Stereolab. Yeah. Some of these people who we had, we kind of hooked up and hook up in, in our world. were very like, um, because we had played a show, with Stereo Lab, we'd played a show with Broadcast, and we gave Broadcast our little uh, burnt CDR demo thing, and and um, we heard from them. They they said, "Oh, we really like your demo. Do you want to, you know, play some shows with us?" And um, we and Stereo Lab's manager Martin liked us, and he's like, "Oh, Stereo Lab's producer want to work with you." Also, I really was in love with this graphic designer Julian House who had done work for Primal Scream, uh, 
like Exterminator, Evil Heat, um, and he uh, did Stair Lab broadcast. Um, he even did some stuff for Oasis and Razor Light and some bigger bands. But um, but I was able to um, yeah ask the label, can we get Julian House to do the artwork? And they agreed to that. So I was able to talk to him, and he did all the the cool graphic design for the for the two records we did. And um, yeah, it was really cool because a lot of these bands I really were inspired by and liked, and and we were kind of getting into their world. And we went on tour with a few other favorites of the time, Clinic. Um, right, yes. Yeah. And uh, Luna, who were Dean Wareham from Galaxy 500's next band, and and uh, he liked us, and we went on tour with them. Blonde Redhead was another one. Um, yeah, there was a lot. It was a. It was like in that period of time where a lot of, uh, you know, it was like the internet was still really influential for bands at that point. And if you were like on Pitchfork or one of these blogs and you got a good review, people would really pay attention. And luckily, Pitchfork did like our music because um, it was sort of like rough if you got a bad review back then from from some of those sites. But uh, but it was a yeah, it was a really um, and the recording of that first record was was really fun and and um, uh, yeah uh, and yeah we we actually went and ended up going to the UK and Europe for a little run of shows and press during that time period too. So it was pretty exciting. Yeah. Yes, that's amazing. Actually, how how was Fulton? Fulton to work with because yeah. he'd well, he'd got an amazing CV. I mean, the amount of bands he's done over the decades is extraordinary. Was that? A, yeah. Did you have a nice experience in the studio working with him? Oh yeah, we did. Yeah, he was great. He was very easygoing, and 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 uh, he had some really cool creative ideas that he would kind of like, you know, like um, throw out there. And we and um, it was more of a fun, creative recording. Um, process where you know we'd just have like oh like oh i got an idea let's try this and he'd be like totally um you know into trying little tricks or or weird ideas that we had and um yeah he was a it was a really um pleasant uh experience like working with him yes because you have about three years and then you bring out your next album lion the girl don't you there's a few personnel changes and also different producer what's it like as the decade is is strolling on at this point so yeah so um yeah we had toured and did a lot of things off that first record and then um so the next record we yeah jason the the other guy in the band had left so we got uh this drummer sandra vu who was excellent and she she went on later to play in the dum-dum girls and um and then we had another guy in the band who did synth and bass, Ryan Wood. And um, so it was now a four-piece. And part of that was because Gina, the singer, wanted to be up front singing because um, she was actually the drummer and she sang, which was a really interesting thing for that first lineup where she was back there playing the drums and singing, which is kind of a unique thing. Yes. But she couldn't, you know, she couldn't really continue. She really wanted to, like, be up front and sing and maybe play keyboard. So we kind of shifted the lineup. Um, and uh, we recorded that record, Lying the Girl, in Seattle. And uh, 
<clears throat> we had a few producers who we were talking to, and the one that kind of was exciting was Steve Fisk, who was a Seattle guy who I was familiar with because of his work with uh, um, Screaming Trees, and um, he did some work with Nirvana and um, had been around the scene you know, early on in Seattle, back to the late 70s, and also he was an experimental musician and into really cool stuff. So, so we decided, um, like, let's go up to Seattle, record with him, and we went to this place called Robert Wang Studios, which was this house, and then the basement, which was all made of rock, was this cool recording studio where... Um, a lot of bands had recorded there, like Nirvana did record there. And you pretty much live in the house and record there. So, you know, we were there for a couple of weeks just living and recording. And again, it was, uh, yeah, with Steve, he was super uh, fun to work with. And he had so many great stories about um, working with a lot of the Seattle bands who, you know, who are also friends. And um, But to hear some of the behind the scenes stuff was great. And he, had all sorts of cool vintage gear and old Farfisa organs and, uh, uh, you know, echo tape loops, echoplex. And, you know, so we, again, it was a really fun, uh, you know, probably more of a loose uh, experience. And with Fulton, it was kind of like, we didn't have a lot of time and it was very like, you know, get this done. But with Steve, it was a little bit more, we had a little bit more time to kind of stretch out and, try new things um but it, and then we went to his house where he had uh to do the overdub and mixing at his his own house which was nice um but uh yeah again it was a really cool experience and it was also really nice to be back in Seattle and to be record uh recording like you know from my first experience the first single I ever did which was just in this very lo-fi you know situation hundred dollar studio <clears throat> with a few mics to then years later to be in a super fancy nice uh recording studio making this record with a well-respected um producer it was like yeah it was pretty cool like yes cool. absolutely and did you were you pleased with the final results of the album were you yeah yeah there was definitely like and the the thing I, I guess I remember about it was that we had also switched labels because Emperor Norton had been uh, uh, something strange. I think they had been bought out by Ryko Disc or something, or it was like right, you know, some, some strange thing. Where then, so that left like some of the bands. Like I remember, uh, I can't remember who Lady Tron went with, but we ended up going um, with a label called. Uh, New Line, which was, mm -hmm. which was a movie product. Like there was New Line Cinema, which was a movie, and I, I was familiar with that because I remember. I, oh, those are the that's the the movie production company that puts out John Waters movies. So I was <laughs> like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> yes, but they, but they had started a uh, a record company, and um, one of their A and R guys had seen us, and and actually. Um, James Eha from Smashing Pumpkins had seen us and he was working for New Line. And he initially was like, introduced us to the label and was like, you guys should sign with this. Um, and James had his little imprint called Scratchy, which he would put out 
you know, singles for bands. So James Ehaw is sort of like the guy who introduced us to this other label. And um, we ended up going with them. And I, but I do remember it being like when that new record was getting worked on that there was definitely like a, it was interesting to kind of have a bigger budget and also have some of the label people, they got to kind of have a say and like, like, oh, you should, you know, the artwork should look like this or maybe not have the song on the record. Or So it was interesting to be like, oh, this is kind of getting <laughs> into that weird major label world where, where they're, they're, they kind of tell you, you know, like their opinion, even though they're not in the band or anything, they're going to, they're going to tell you what they think. And that was an interesting dynamic to be like, oh, this is different than the kind of DIY punk world I was used to. Yes. Um, so, so it was sort of like, it's like, wow, okay, I guess there, that really does exist in this world where um, the more money and, and more people involved, the more um, opinions and voices kind of interject into your creative uh, process. So, but in the end, it all, it all worked out fine. And the record came out and we, you know, ended up going on tour with Clinic and Blonde Redhead and doing all that stuff during that period. And, um, uh, yeah, so it was still like a, a again a, a good run of you know of stuff that happened after that record came out. Yes, and then how long did the band last before it lasted about seven years? And then again, it was like after about a year of touring or so, um, our singer Gina just was just like, I'm I want to shift gears and do something else, and and um. You know, and we were all kind of like at that point, like, you know, a little bummed that that was the end of the band. But again, we're just like, all right, well, I guess, you know, everything comes to an end at some point. And um, every week at all, you know, move on to other things. And um, so it was all, yeah, it ended, you know, on a good note. We're all still friend, friends. It wasn't anything, uh, you know, bad that went down, but it was... Uh, but it was sort of sad when the band ended because we were on kind of a good run. But uh, yes. But, um, but yeah, then it was like, all right, um, you know, on to the next thing. So that yeah, that that was probably two thousand seven, two thousand eight when that band ended. Yeah. Yes, and then so you have a few years before the next musical, the Death Valley Girls. What happens in yeah. between that period? Oh, so then I was like, yeah, then I was just like. Um, yeah, I got to work at this big uh, music store in LA called Amoeba Music, which is this huge record store, and um, started working there. And 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 again, just started meeting all sorts of you know interesting people from the LA music scene. And um, would just start um, playing with people and jamming. And oh yeah, there's also a part of the story I forgot to interject, which was during the Midnight Movies era. Um, that Patty was working on Courtney Love's solo record around 2004. And that was another project that I got to be a part of as far as like um, co-writing some songs with that project and being in the recording studio, which was exciting to kind of see like, oh, this is how the real big major, you know, label situations work. Yes. Um, because her you first, know. her first, was this her first solo album that you worked yeah. on? Yeah, yeah, America's Sweetheart in two thousand 
four, I think it was. Because I kind of, I remember John Peel, he was always quite touched by uh, Courtney. I think he'd seen yeah. her at Glastonbury Festival and she, she'd been particularly nice to some of his children. And he, I yeah. think he, took, he he took a particular kind of, well, that's really nice of you. I'll, sort yeah. of, I'll plug your solo work. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so America, yes, but that's her only solo album, isn't it, really? Yeah, that was it. Yeah, that was it's that one thing. And it was kind of made at a, a yeah, strange time, and she, yeah, she um, was still kind of like, yeah, not, didn't have all her stuff together, was still very uh, chaotic kind of situation, so the record came out, and yeah, it didn't quite take off um, as it should have, and and it was kind of a, yeah, kind of a disorganized and chaotic period for her, so yeah, I don't think she was really ready to, you know, to because uh, you because you you collaborate with quite a bit of the songwriting on that don't you you write yeah. the the, yeah. the kind of most of it is kind of collaborations with all all of you which is quite yeah. interesting so do you then in that process are you all sitting there in the studio or in a rehearsal and sort of working on different ideas trying to sort of formulate some finished product yeah yeah because there was I mean there was different people who I I didn't work with in the room but had songwriting on the record like Billy Corrigan and um but I did work with the producer Linda Perry who was in the band Four Non Blondes she, she we we had were writing together and um and uh showed Courtney a few ideas and so yeah there was a couple songs that were actually the lead lead off single mono was uh was uh, yeah, a collaborative thing between me and Patty and Courtney and I think Linda might have had a bit on that too. But yes. it, but it was interesting. And then also when we recorded demos for it, we had Steve McDonald, who was in the band Red Cross, come in and he played on it, which was really cool to play with him because he's amazing. Um, and it was yeah, it was fun. I'm you know like I I thought some of it turned out pretty cool. And um, but. Um, yeah, I guess at the time it just didn't have the right uh, push behind it or something. But uh, but it was for as but as far as the experience went, it was really yeah, yes. fascinating. Well, yeah, it was a bit more showbiz, wasn't it? I think you had Bernie yeah, yeah. Tall. Was Bernie Tallpin also on it as well? Or wrote oh, maybe it maybe was. Yeah, I don't think I I uh, yeah. Some of the songwriting was done in another. At other times. So, so as, um, as the as we got towards that sort of mid to end of that decade, had things calmed down kind of emotionally with people, or was it still a bit sort of excitable at times? Um, yeah, they were starting to calm down, I think, kind of level out. And yeah, yeah, by that time. And um yeah. And then by and I was <clears throat> yeah, so after that kind of time with the midnight movies and and I had, uh, um, yeah, I was just going back to work and, and I would just play occasionally with people around town and do little projects here and there, but nothing, um, yeah, nothing like really solid, uh, until around 2012 or so when, uh, Death Valley Girls started. <laughs> Blimey, and this is this is probably your longest ever band, isn't it? As well, yeah, yeah. Which yeah, ten... like yeah, ten years. So ten. So, so is this your not just a side hustle? Do you, but 
you know, as a musician at this stage, do you manage to do it sort of full time or do you also have to have a bit of a side hustle? Um, it's kind of a bit of this uh, thing where I also work. Um, I do other stuff like I, I sell um, records and collectibles on eBay and I'll work at Amoeba Records. And, you know, so it is like a thing where it's like um, the band does stuff and then I'll also. Uh, um yeah have the have uh, other jobs and things to kind of like make ends meet <clears throat> and uh, yeah so that's been sort of a yeah like whatever whatever's happening at the time kind of yes. adjust to, this yeah. is true so you're on burger records at this stage aren't you oh very early on yeah it was burger yeah Burger. So your first kind of album, your first kind of album is this one called, is it Street Venom at this point? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So how did you all four, was it the four piece at that point? Yeah, it was like me and me and uh, Patty had met the singer Bonnie and she had a bass player friend named Rocky and uh, we had, uh, yeah, just got together, like Patty knew Bonnie's sister and they had met because both of their little kids were at the same school and they were chatting about music and and uh and about you know patty told bonnie's sister like oh my brother plays music and bonnie's sister said oh my my sister plays music so oh they should get together um so we all got together me bonnie patty and rocky and and just started like jamming and and showing each other ideas and um yeah it was pretty a pretty quick thing where we had a group of songs together we were both kind of on the same we were all on the same page as far as what type of music we were doing and um yeah it was just maybe a few months later where we <clears throat> we had uh, burger records had heard us and saw us play live and they're like oh we'll put out a cassette tape for you and we were like like oh yeah that sounds great so that was the first release Yes. And what's it like? I mean, I mean, you know, this is quite an interesting dynamic because it's it's three girls and yourself or not girls. God, that's terrible. Three women and yourself. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So so it's quite an interesting one. Normally, this is a ratio, which is quite often the opposite of this, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes. Yeah, so what's, uh, is that kind of exciting? Do you actually find it kind of like quite interesting to sort of think, oh yeah, okay, this is kind of interesting, totally different kind of vibe that you, you've had before. I know you've actually worked with a lot of women in bands actually, so it's not completely new to yeah. you, but I just think, you know, with each new lineup, it must be quite interesting. So what was it like with this one? Yeah, with this one, it was, it was, um, yeah, it was just like, um, I guess the, yeah, as far as the, uh, I guess it was more focused as far as um, some of the other bands where it was like the songwriting and stuff was was um, was happening quicker and there was just more of a chemistry between me and Bonnie's uh, ideas. So it was kind of, kind of like a thing where we would both kind of come together with ideas and then show the rest of the band and they would just like, you know, glue it all together. And um, it was very... Uh, yeah, very kind of, uh, um, yeah, it seemed, seemed easier than some of the other projects where there was a lot of, um, maybe it took, took a bit more, um, kind of work to kind of get things together. Um, 
or it was just like not very well thought out or more just kind of like, you know, just uh, slapped together where this one, there was a little, maybe a bit more um, like, uh, yeah. I mean, not to say, because Midnight Movies, there was definitely, um, we were very like, you know, detail oriented as far as putting the songs together and stuff. But I think with the Death Valley Girls, it was just a a quicker kind of songwriting um, a team where we would come up with stuff and then, you know, go through the songs and, and the, uh, and for the type of music we were doing, which was more, definitely more of a, a punky garage rock kind of stooges type of thing where um, once we had a simple structure and things, things that would just sort of click. So I think the dynamic was definitely, um, yeah, it was, it was nice to have that sort of, uh, you know, connection. Yes. So your first album, Street Venom, comes out. That's fourteen. Then Glow in the Dark. Two years later, does the is that quite a jump for you musically as a band at that point? Sort of. Yeah. Yeah, we kind of like yeah, we're just getting more comfortable and and um, you know, kind of even stretching out a bit with the music. And and again, we had another lineup change where we got another drummer and a bass player and um. So that added another element to the sound. And um, we were kind of getting, um, yeah, even by that time, even getting into more like kind of uh, a few songs that were maybe less, you know, like aggressive rock to even more like a dream pop sort of shoegazy kind of vibe, even seeping in at that point, which is part of the sound. Yes, but then because you then you you sort of move to Suicide Squeeze Records, don't you? And then for Darkness yeah. Reigns, you bring in sort of saxophone, keyboards, so it has that yeah. kind of much more lush orchestral touch. So were you yeah. all in agreement of how the band was sort of going to go for the next project? Yeah, yeah, we yeah because the songwriting for that was a bit more like or Glow in the Dark was kind of like. Um, random you know different recording sessions and stuff where darkness reigns was more focused and um uh we had our friend mark cisneros from so many great bands like kid congo's band and um the makeup and so many great bands he he came in to play saxophone and um we had more uh synth stuff from our friend greg foreman who's an amazing keyboard player and uh and yeah, so that was sort of like a kind of a shift where we were still kind of had kind of the dark, heavy psychedelic stuff, but also um, some of the more of the pop elements coming out. And um, and that, yeah, it was a bit more of a focused record. And also the first single, Disaster, was the one where we um, miraculously got Iggy Pop to be in our music video, which was, a you know, a huge thing to kind of... Yes, my God, amazing. I mean, yes, having two saxophone players, a keyboard player, and another vocalist. Alex James, does she sort of appear on just one or two tracks, or? Oh, what's the the? Uh, Is there another vocalist on it apart from Bonnie? Oh, oh, oh. there was. um, Jesse Jones was on some tracks on uh, Glow in the Dark, and then on. yeah, in Darkness Reigns, there were some backup singers, the, a few backup singers, but not for 
Yeah, but Bonnie was pretty much doing the main uh, singing. And did you tour that particular album when that came out? Yeah, 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 yeah. We toured, um, yeah, that one. Uh, yeah, we we had gone to to Europe and um, lots of festivals, and yeah, yeah. Pretty much since Glow in the Dark had come out, we had pretty much every year been pretty pretty heavy on the touring schedule. My God, that's amazing! Because then your your next the next album is that Under the Spell of Joy. Yeah, Under the Spell of Joy came out. And that has an even bigger lineup, doesn't it? You've, you've oh, yeah. More ambition. So is the yeah. record label really pleased with you at this stage? Are you sort of... Yeah. To... Yeah, they're very happy. David Dickinson, the guy who runs the label, is amazing and and really helped promote, you know, puts a lot behind the records to promote the bands and, and gives us, you know, a budget for videos and, you know, like, really get creative with um with the art side of it so yeah under the spell again was a yeah it was a another little jump up and um uh yeah and had a lot of guest people on the you know we would have all our friends come in to join in and you know yes. uh, yeah but you release it 2020 don't you this is coming you record it 2019 i guess and this is yeah um, yeah, so it comes out like we record it right as the uh we we finish it right as the pandemic uh um is beginning. We finish it like March of 2020. So then the world shuts down and we're like left with, you know, this record and that we can't, you know, that's going to eventually be out that we were unsure of what the future held and it turned out that the, you know, the pandemic went for quite a long time, the record came out during that period, and like a lot of bands in our position, all we could really do is just promote it online and and um you know without the help of touring and just um put out videos and and even through that it was you know um yeah it was uh you know like people responded to it and it did it did great you know even even though we had to wait quite a while before we actually toured on it my god when was the first time you could all meet up and um rehearse and go back on when was your first touring that during the pandemic yeah i think it was uh, i can't i'm not sure if i have the timing right but it seems to be like late 2021 right yes um, it, it, 2020 just seemed to be a bit of an odd one really didn't it yeah that stage and Were i remember you... going yeah because so, i remember the the end of 2021 we got offered a tour with this band um who had got back together from the 90s called and you will know us by the trail of dead and oh, yeah god i remember that name yeah so they they had got they had put out a new record and we're starting a tour again and they asked us to go out with them for a couple weeks and and it seemed at that point the pandemic the pandemic was sort of like um uh mellowing out so we're like all right let's you know let's go out there and do this. And, and we did. And, uh, you know, it was a couple of weeks. It was a lot of fun and, you know, great tour. And then, but when we got home, then there was another big, uh, swell in the pandemic where things were getting shut down again. And it was like, we kind of got a little taste of touring again, but then there was another few months where things were kind of tough to, uh, navigate. And so we, uh, yeah, so at that period, we had also recorded the new record 
and we're just waiting for that to come out. So yes. So did you write all of um, Islands in the Sky? Was this all written during the pandemic lockdown? Whose bubble are you in time? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we pretty much use that time to uh, write that new record and get all that prepared. So by the time we were, you know, ready to tour, um, Islands in the Sky was, um, you know, was about to come out. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so it was, uh, yeah, but there was quite a, quite a wait for that. Cause, cause again, there was also other elements happening where the, uh, a lot of the U S vinyl record plants were, were backed up because a lot of the, now that all vinyls, all the rage again, and all the major, uh, artists like Taylor Swift and, uh, um, you know, like all these Billie Eilish, all these people get, have their records on vinyl and they get first, the major labels get first, uh, you know, go at getting their vinyl press. So all, all the indie labels get kind of like um, pushed to the back of the line. So, so again, it, after recording that record, um, then we had to wait an extra long time for it to come out. So there was a lot of like touring and um, festivals kind of in between where, as we were waiting for the new record to come out, but we were kind of, you know, it's kind of good just to get back out there um, uh, and kind of do some touring behind under the spell of joy, since we really didn't get to do proper tours for that. Yes. God, that is tough. How did you cope with the, the kind of the dreaded lockdown period? Um, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, it was so strange because there really wasn't anything to do. You're just sort of like at home and, and, um, yeah, it really was just like being, um, you know, like working on little creative things. And, and, um, you know, since that, the, the Under the Spell of Joy record was still in product, like still getting, uh, you know, sent to the mastering and all that. Like in the meantime, I was able to do like the artwork for the album and, put all that together, which I'd been doing for a lot of the Death Valley Girl stuff is like the graphic design work for the the record, the record art. So I would spend time like, oh, I'm going to work on some ideas for that, or maybe some, you know, just like uh, anything to, to keep busy or maybe write, you know, try to think up some new ideas for new songs. And, and it was, yeah, it really was a very um, strange time um, to be, yeah, just sort of like isolated, you know. Yes, absolutely. But you've last year you were touring quite a lot, weren't you? You went to Australia at one stage. Yeah, yeah. It was a pretty relentless year of touring for Islands in the Sky, where the record came out and we directly went to went to Europe and the UK and um came home and you know did South by Southwest and Texas and a big tour around that and uh went to Mexico for a couple weeks. Um uh many festivals and and um yeah ended up the year with uh with a trip to australia which was amazing and just like a mind-blowing experience and yeah my god that's fantastic is there any particular country that take you to heart because often people in britain say oh yeah the the italians love us or the spanish oh yeah do you have yeah. a, a country that sort of um you suddenly find you've got an amazing audience who know all the lyrics yeah, I don't know that. Yeah, it's it's tough because it seems to be like, you know, everywhere there's little pockets, like everywhere, like whenever we, you know, uh, play in 
with London or Manchester, always, I always think we have good shows there. And, and um, definitely uh, in Berlin, like going to Germany, like Berlin's always a really great time. Love playing there. Um, and um, Spain, like the times we've been there and Barcelona and um, yeah, there's so many. And then being in Australia was amazing because it was like, it was our first time there. So a lot of people weren't familiar with us, but um, uh, and we got to play with our friends, Frankie and the Witch Fingers, who are, already have a following there, which was great. Um, but yeah, it's really hard to kind of, to really think of like what the, yeah, the one spot that I really think is a lot of fun because there's just so many like I always because I'll, I'll think of one then oh yeah but I forgot about you know the yes. spot you know yeah and how was the UK did you say you did UK or just Europe but I stayed yeah yeah we did UK um and uh yeah like Brighton um Manchester it was freezing we played outdoors in Manchester and it was freezing cold but <laughs> <laughs> super fun yes. um London always great you know yeah Excellent. And then, so with 2024, what's your going forward? Um, Yes, what's the state of play? So now, okay, whole new, whole new kind of thing going on. So, um, so I, I recently, like, am uh, left Death Valley Girls, like, this is fresh, you know, stuff where I'm gonna, I'm working on some other, um, on a, some other music projects and uh and yeah this is this kind of just happened where it's like okay i'm gonna shift gears and do some other stuff and bonnie with death valley girl she's like she's they're gonna go forward with the band and they have a they do have a european tour coming up in the springtime and then um i'm assuming have a another record um that they'll be working on was, um, that, was that all in the kind of pipeline last year that this was going to happen or was it a decision made over Christmas? It was, yeah, it was over, over kind of the holidays where there was things that I was kind of thinking of doing and, and kind of like looking at the, the new year and what was going to happen. And, and since uh, Death Valley Girls did all our touring last year and it was so packed with stuff that this year there was, um, as far as what was going on, there was going to be a tour, but there's going to be more just like focusing on writing a new record. So I thought, um, you know, and I was always like working on other stuff and I, and I felt like, well, if now might be the good time to, um, if I step away from it and then I could work on these other projects and Bonnie really wants to focus on the new Death Valley girl stuff. So it was sort of a, um, yeah, mutual agreement of like you know like if any time or if i were to like leave the band um it were you know like now is 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 probably the best time to where there's not a lot of stuff um commitment for me to um have to cover while i'm working on other stuff so so everything is all great you know i'm still like uh yeah on good terms and and everything but it was just like um yeah another as my music uh, well, career is gone it's always shifting and moving on to the next thing so it's just been like and I, it's been crazy that that i've been doing this for 10 years because that's like such a long time to be doing uh one band but it's also like all right now let's you know shift gears and move on to this other thing and 
you know, so it's just like the ongoing kind of uh, adventure of like. Yes. Well, God, there you go. So you're not going to be doing Europe um, or the UK yeah. in sort of March, are you? Or yeah. Not, you're not doing yeah. those days. My God, that's. Yeah. So what's your. So have you got a band? Or are you looking at sort of other projects at this stage? Or Yeah. I'm so, yeah I've been writing some music at home and. and you know, talking with some few other friends about things and, but yeah, nothing totally, um, you know, congealed yet as a, as a band, but it's just more of like the ideas and things are there and just wanted to kind of like, um, yeah, kind of just give myself space to, to take a break, take a breather and then work on new music and, and then kind of like, yeah, go from there. Yes. I guess you are in your mid fifties now, aren't you? So yeah. Um... <laughs> another yeah. tour i guess touring gets quite hard work doesn't it after yeah all it while. does yeah it was it's pretty like yeah the it it you know there's a lot of fun and adventure but it also like especially like yeah this last year was pretty exhausting and pretty intense so it was like it's like all right it'll be nice to just you know take a break from that and get back to just like um you know like uh focusing on writing some new music and stuff without the idea of like, Oh, there's another tour coming and there's this other stuff. It's like, um, yeah, just kind of getting back into the, into the basement and working on new stuff. Yes. Are you yeah. look at, are you, do you, can you see yourself in six months time bringing together a new lineup and a different sort of musical moment? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of like going to just see how it all, you know, progresses, but, um, yeah, that seems to be a um, a yeah realistic time period of like having having something uh, up and running again, and you know starting over. It's like every few years, I'm like, okay, now this this thing ended, and going on to this, and going on to that. So it's just like, yeah, just keeping the creative juices flowing. But yeah, hopefully in that time period, I'll have something. Yes, something new happening. That's amazing. Do you think you'll ever? I know, you, you know, Patty had a, a sort of film that I watched come out. Do you think you'll ever sort of try and archive your sort of musical journey? Because you must have quite a lot lot of material and also archiving of sort of posters and flyers and photographs. Do you, do you, have you ever been tempted to start thinking about how to sort of put all that together? Yeah, yeah. A lot of people have asked me about that, like about all the, the flyers and posters and ticket stubs and stuff. and. And, yeah, and I've always kind of thought about that, and I've always kind of, like, been, in a way, sort of sharing and archiving things on, like, social media, like on Instagram, where, like, I'll post a, a flyer or a poster from a show and be like, oh, this, you know, this is a Nirvana show from 1989, and this is, you know, what happened, and, and like, a, usually, like, to tell a story um, behind the, that piece of memorabilia, yes. and, um, you know, just been doing that. And, um, I think in a way that is sort of like a, a cool and easy way of kind of like sharing the, the stories and, and, um, you know, and sharing the bit of memorabilia that people, you know, really, um, like to, um, yeah, to hear, hear about that stuff. So, yeah, I don't know if I'd, I'd love to, yeah, put out a book or something one day, but for now I'd really enjoy like the, interaction on social media where I share stuff and been meeting lots of cool people into music and, um, you know, who, and especially younger kids are really interested in that, 
especially the early 90s scene in Seattle who, you know, just love to hear the stories. And yes. um, so, yeah, I really have fun, like, like, yeah, sharing that stuff. I know at the end of last year, I did an interview with the cello player from MTV. The, the was her name? Laura Goldston. Did oh, yeah. Because yeah. cool. she was doing some art project that was getting recorded in East Anglia in the UK. So, um, yeah. yes, and I thought, oh, that'd be interesting. When I saw her name, I did an interview, and she talked a bit about Seattle and how it changed. House prices changed quite radically, didn't oh, they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yes, someone got rich on that, didn't they? But anyway, yeah. that's, that's yeah, yeah. Always, it's always the way, isn't it? I guess that happens yep. with a lot of cities. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your, like, 16-year-old self starts now, is there anything in particular that you'd have, oh, yes, that's a good idea, even if that person would have ignored it? But I just wondered, with all your experience and uh, kind of journey, what, what, what key things have happened that you might have thought, yes, that would have been really good to have known? Um. Yeah, I guess I guess it is that thing of like um you know, like I guess I would have told that kid like not to not to get discouraged and you know, like life is full of many ups and downs and and um and uh when yeah, like to you know be grateful and cherish the the good stuff and and if things are going you feel they're not going your way like not to give up to like just to um uh you know kind of move forward and and change is good and uh and not to yeah not to um uh, yeah let things kind of like drag you down like um cuz yeah, life is just like such a strange journey that there's so many un- unexpected things that you would never imagine happening and they do. And it's like, it's like really exciting. And I think, yeah, just, just to tell that kid, like, yeah, don't, don't be discouraged and like, um, you know, keep doing what you love and, and, um, you know, like th- things just happen. Like they just happen when, when you follow your heart, you know? So yeah, I think that's kind of, yeah, kind of it. Cause in life of kind of, yeah, like been discouraged or kind of had tough times and, 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 um, yeah. And it's a sort of like trying to keep a positive attitude because thing change is just inevitable in life and, and you never know what's around the corner. No, that's, that's right. And is Patty keeping well, by the way? Oh yeah, yeah. She says hi. I told her. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's doing great. Yeah, um, yeah. She's just, uh, yeah. You know, take her, her hanging out with her thirteen-year-old daughter today, and and um, she's keeping busy and doing really good. Fantastic. Oh, I'm so pleased. God, I really loved meeting her. Actually, she was so excited about that indie scene, which I was like, oh wow, that's that yeah. incredible. You big flame stump, you know, all those yeah. hands. She loved yeah. them all. It was like, God, that's so very cool. that was very impressive. But look, Larry, yeah. thank you ever so much for this. If you want, I can always send you the link and you can always oh, cool. put it on your social media page and um yes. yes and use it elsewhere. But look, thank you for your time. Um yeah, thank that's you been so amazing. Much. And yeah. I'm probably going to go to bed soon actually. <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, yeah what time is it over there? 
it's like, 11 o'clock. It's 11. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, that's all good. So, yeah, have you ever played in Norwich, by the way? Norwich in the no, UK? Never played there. Yeah, that's one spot I can't uh, recall playing. I guess you do sort of London, Bristol, Birmingham, Leeds, Manchester, yeah, Liverpool, all, all those, yep. but not quite on the sort of other side. Well, yes. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you came to the UK last year for your tour with the band. And um, yes, well, hopefully you get to tour again soon. In yeah. the next few years. But anyway, look, yeah. thank you again for your time. It's been amazing. And um, yes. I'll let you go. But look, have a lovely day. And um, I'm going to go to bed. Anyway, thanks, Larry. Yeah, thanks so yeah. much for having me. Yes, All take right. care. Cheers. Thanks yep. for your time. Bye. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, if you're still with us, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Larry Shamal for... Give me the time for that interview. I will give you some uh, links to how you can find out more about what he's up to. I think if you go to his Facebook page, it's all there and much more. This has been the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these uh, interviews have been archived, aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes or Podbeam. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.